Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. Maybe today when we're uh, studying together, we can hold uh, Japan and everyone affected, including us, by the earthquake and tsunami uh, in our hearts. Um, I thought I'd start today uh, uh, with a passage from an email I got yesterday from Peter Levitt. Uh, For those of you who don't know Peter Levitt, he's a Zen teacher, an American Zen teacher, and uh, incredible poet and also translator of Dogen and who currently lives in Salt Spring Island. Here's part of an email he wrote. To really allow in what is happening and the scope of it for the Japanese people, their future, much less their present losses, is a cause of incalculable sorrow. I don't mind being in that with them, but I sure mind them being in it at all. The Japanese people were sacrificed so that all may see the horror of nuclear war. And now they have been sacrificed again in less than 70 years so that all may see the horror of nuclear peace when faced with actual life and its circumstances, as opposed to drawing board nuclear perfection. It's a horrible sacrifice to have to make, and I grieve for them as one of many who do. I think Peter said it well. Um, <clears throat> part of this, this course is about recognizing interdependence. And um, I think one of the interesting things about this um, situation that we're all touched by is um, how we're all embedded in the situation. So much of the suffering that's happening that we're watching now in Japan is not just from uh, an earthquake or a tsunami, but from the human-built world and the effect of the human-built world now on humans. And so there are some lessons that you know, all of us can learn. Uh, but first, uh, just to really feel um, what's going on in, in whatever way you feel it. And throughout the day it might be different. And this is one of the ways that we feel now as humans is we have this social media now where... <coughs> it's like our heart can open to something going on so far away. And somehow it's at such a distance and it's so close at exactly the same time. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. 
And the way I thought it would go today is because it's really our last day to focus on one particular precept. So what I'd like to do is just talk a little bit about the precept of a parigraha. And then uh, I want to do a little exercise together. And then maybe we can finish by um, hearing some of the uh, rewrites of the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh um, um, precept of right conduct. Does that sound reasonable to you? So first, I think because most of you have been here when we've been studying the Lotus Sutra, and I hope you can feel the connection between the Heart Sutra and the Lotus Sutra when we're chanting it. Um, I just wanted to say a a few things about the context of the precepts. Um, So some of you know my interest is in bringing together yoga and Buddhist practice. And the style of Buddhism that really informs the way we're approaching the precepts is really Mahayana Buddhism, which is this notion that uh, one of the best ways we can live our life is to aspire to live as a bodhisattva, which is somebody who gains the tools necessary to serve others. And that we see this as a process of waking up. We don't wake up alone, and we don't just serve others, we wake up with others. We're all doing this together, and we need others in order to practice. Um, Early Western interpretations of both Buddhism and yoga, I think, really looked at the Dharma as a kind of psychological, logical, rational practice. And I actually think this is really how Buddhism is being incorporated into our culture right now, especially in the university level. Um, but also in the way that Buddhism is suddenly so accessible through techniques like mindfulness practice, is it's logical, it's rational, there's no real belief system, um, and it can help you. Um, I think this comes because it's a contrast to the religion that many people grew up in or many people's parents grew up in, which is faith-based and maybe even a little superstitious. And so Buddhism is suddenly so appealing And you hear Western interpretations of Buddhism as uh, describing the teachings of the Buddha as this kind of uh, secular, scientific, verifiable teaching. And uh, I think a lot of people who hear the Dharma being taught that way, when they go travel to Buddhist countries, they can't believe what they see. (laughs) Because traditional Buddhism doesn't really look like that. It's kind of what we've done through our material lens with with Buddhism and how we're able to to receive it. And that's one of the reasons for teaching Lotus Sutra on Tuesday nights. It's kind of stretch a little bit the way we take in um, these teachings. Um, So Mahayana practice, yana is a vehicle and maha means great, which basically means you can carry a lot of people in your vehicle. And um, it really emphasizes a kind of fullness of emotion in practice. And the the desire to really unite with other people in their suffering. To really feel other suffering and to connect with them in their suffering. Um and to love each other. To love each other with big religious love. 
big fat religious love. Um, also, what you find in Mahayana practice is um, devotion and gratitude uh, to community, to the interdependence of community, or to the interdependence that is community. And I think so many of us, you know, we get caught up in this desire, I think, when we're doing spiritual practice to get spiritual and to get somewhere. And sometimes we, we can forget about just the way we open a door for somebody. Um, one tendency in Buddhism is the desire to escape samsara. So there is this wheel of habit, of conditioned existence that we're in, and one tendency as practice is to try and get out of this, get off the wheel. And another tendency in the practice is to um, really feel uh, a kind of devotion to all living beings. And this is like a spectrum with two ideals at either end. One is to get out of here, and one is to serve every single being until every fish and sea creature is served. I don't know about you, but when you read the Bodhisattva vows, maybe the first one makes sense to you. You know, I, I'm going to serve all beings. And then it becomes more and more impossible. And I'm going to attain the Buddha way. Well, how do you save all beings? You save all beings by seeing there are no other beings. How do you attain the Buddha way? Is to see there is nothing really to attain. That the attainment comes by seeing yourself interconnected with all beings. Um, in the Western Vipassana culture, um, which many of you are familiar with, there's no ritual. It's a culture of meditation. And if you really drop deep into meditation practice, you will have insight into the nature of reality. It's sort of the bare bones root metaphor of that way of teaching. And I'm stressing Western Vipassana. Uh, in Western Zen, there is some ritual. Um, but when you start reading the Lotus Sutra and you hear about the 18,000 worlds and the 80,000 bodhisattvas and light coming out of your... I mean, that's rarely touched on. And likewise, you see this in Western Tibetan Buddhism. In Western Tibetan Buddhism, um, all the mumbo-jumbo and you know, colors and uh, deities, they're all interpreted as archetypes. Jungian archetypes. They're all like patterns in you that are uh, potentials. So I would actually say that Western Buddhism is not actually so emotion-focused. It's not so devotional. You know? And I think maybe it's attractive. You know? But I think the danger of that kind of practice is it doesn't really get to the koan level of ethics, of precepts. Um, 
for Mahayana Buddhism, everything begins with emptiness. And once you see that the foundation of everything is empty, you're free to do what you want. You can teach innumerable ways, but you see that the core structure is not fixed. Um, if you asked a traditional Mahayana, I'm not, I don't know if this is true, but we could guess, that if you asked a traditional Mahayana Buddhist practitioner uh, 800 years ago, you know, are those deities in the 18,000 worlds that we studied on Tuesday real? They would probably say no. They're not real. And then they would probably say nothing is. <laughs> right? um, everything is real and unreal. So everything is as real as you and as unreal as you. Um, as real and as unreal as radioactivity. It's real and somehow it's also unreal. Um, We really believe that our thoughts are real, and our emotions are real, and so we're real. Or we don't believe we're real, but we still think that our emotions are the realest thing that we can experience as ourselves. But other realms, they're definitely not real. I'm a little more real than another realm. And maybe even fundamentalists who really believe in other worlds, don't really believe in other worlds. They really believe in other material worlds. In other words, fundamentalists aren't really fundamentalists because they really are believing in the same materiality that we're believing in. They're looking at the world through the same materialist bias because they don't really believe, usually, that there are other worlds. They believe there are other worlds, but they're material worlds. You know? um, and I think that Buddhists of the past um, don't really have this kind of material hysteria that we do. Um, and I think the reason is, is because they weren't so literal. And they really valued the imagination. And I think our imagination is impoverished, really. And I think if you don't have an imagination, you can't hold the feelings that we are. And so I wanted to talk about the relationship between imagination and the precepts in order to talk about greed. Um, first of all, Imagination, which meditators are really down on, <laughs> is actually the most real thing that you have. Uh, it's what organizes what comes through your senses. It's more real than your nose. And really, in order to actually know what your nose is, you need your imagination. 
To know what the eyes see, you need your imagination. And it's actually with your imagination that you intuit interdependence. Um, And I think imagination can hold us in a more real way than our thoughts or our eyes. And in the modern world, we've created such an emphasis on materialism that we've crowded out imagination. I mean, you can fly anywhere in the world within 24 hours, materially, but not necessarily imaginatively. Pat? So, how would you define the difference between imagination and your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Are you saying that your imagination is, comes to you visually? Or are you saying that because thinking is the vehicle? Yeah, it's like having some respect for thoughts, especially the ones that aren't yours. You know, it's kind of like when you're uh, writing a sentence and you want to explain something, and what you reach for to explain something really clearly is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. You can't really think your way to a metaphor. It happens from somewhere else. Sarah Selecki has this wonderful exercise that she teaches in her writing courses. We should try it to get a sense of this, where she says, um, um, remember your first phone number, the earliest one you can remember. Just close your eyes and just remember your first phone. Probably it's there already. Yeah. And then she gets the group to now um, remember a phone number, three phone numbers ago. I don't know what that means. Does that mean like three phone numbers you just called, or does it mean three phone numbers? Your phone number, your phone number, three phone numbers ago. So the purpose of the exercise, you don't even do, it's like a five-second exercise, is just to feel in you the two different places you went to. Like to get three phone numbers ago, or to get that first phone number, you go to a different place. It's like the information comes from a different place. Can you feel that? Can anybody feel that? Some of you are nodding. Some not. <laughs> you can do this in different ways. But I think it's a, it's a nice exercise to see how imagination is not always something that you think. It's also the way um, the natural world in the form of thoughts just comes to you. Like a good metaphor or a good idea. Not that it doesn't get reworked, but that it's, it's immediate... But it's also an addition at the same time. Well, it's also memory, isn't it? And there's memory in it. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> because that just, both of those phone numbers just brought on a slew of images. Uh huh. Like that. Yeah. And where I was at that time. Like a little girl and a <clears throat> adult working person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I remember one time you know, giving a talk at Esther Meyer's studio and there was a Tibetan monk there and I was talking about how I didn't really believe in life after death. 
And the Tibetan monk said to me privately at the end, you know, in the West, nobody believes in life after death. I hear this over and over. And in Tibet, we're absolutely sure that there's life after death. And you're absolutely sure there's not. And our argument is that on the other side, it's not verifiable. So we say to the Tibetans, there's no life after death. You can't verify that there's life after death. And they're saying to us, you can't verify that there is life after death. (laughs) Um, The point is, is that I think psychically in our world that's so focused on the material, we've lost something. Because I think it's kind of unstable to be certain of one point of view. And I think the great Mahayana teachings of the Lotus Sutra that we're exploring on Tuesdays is really a kind of like bringing back this focus on the imagination and showing that at the center of any view is emptiness. The center of any view is empty. So you can't get fixed. And I think without imagination, we lose track of how to feel interconnectedness, how to feel love. We lose track of ourselves. So the precept that we're exploring today is a padigraha, which usually is translated as not being greedy uh, or not being stingy. Um, And I want to work on it pretty much on the koan level, because originally the way I was going to teach is just give you statistics about greed in our culture. But I think we know it already. So I thought we could really just work on on the koan level. Um, But I also want you to really use your imagination um, to think about all the ways we can be acquisitive. We can collect more than we need. Um, And of course, the opposite is um, generosity. So after we talked about sexual greed, I sort of retranslated a parigraha, and I don't know if it's correct yet, but the current way I'm talking about Aparigraha is non-possessiveness. Non-possessiveness. And you can see if that's true for you. I think it's true for me. It's only a few days that I've been working with that translation. Non-possessiveness. Um, I also like stinginess. And you could say that stinginess or non-possessiveness, um, or I'm sorry, or possessiveness, is... Uh, turning away from relationship. Some of us are stingy with ourselves. Some of us are stingy with others. And some of us with both. Um, Apadigraha is not about repressing possessiveness um, or greed. It's about an active expression of the opposite. It's about generosity. On Tuesday, I was really excited to have a couple hours alone. And then 
my son's mother needed me to drive him to March break camp. And I did so with resentment. And it really, it messed up my whole day. Because my day was planned. I was going to, you know, practice and write the Lotus Sutra and have time by myself. Uh, and uh, I had to take him to March break camp. And actually, you know, maybe he picked up on it, maybe he didn't. But the act was really not done with much generosity. It was done with possessiveness. This was my time. (laughs) This was my time. Anyways, it's Thursday now, and I'm I'm getting over it. (laughs) Some parents never get over it. Um, you can also practice generosity when you're alone even just when you're alone and something really excites you and there's that feeling like you want to share it with someone that's a good that's a good thing so um, there are three different categories in uh, traditional Mahayana Buddhism for gift giving so again, we're talking about uh, non-greed in the positive sense, generosity. The first category is material gifts. Material gifts. The second category of giving is the gift of fearlessness. And the third is the gift of the Dharma. Um, I added some other ones. Um, Love. All your possessions. Your time. Privilege. Your body. Especially your body at death. How to treat death as a practice of generosity. I have rarely heard anyone talk about death this way. Mostly we talk about death as taking away, which I think is a kind of greedy way of thinking about dying. But what if you also think about death as a Okay, I'm giving it away now. This thing that never really belonged to me. It reminds me of something I heard on the CDC um, just recently Mm -hmm. about them talking about maintaining the nuclear reactors and how actually there is a group of um, elderly people, retired people, Mm -hmm. who have come forth to volunteer to go there to do work knowing that they could actually get very sick mm-hmm. or could potentially die, but they felt that they would do that in the service of their people. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that was pretty uh, Amazing, okay. yeah. It takes some imagination. Yeah. <laughs> so, material gifts, I think it's kind of obvious. You know, giving within your means. But because we're focusing a little on the koan level, I really want to look at 
fearlessness. So the gift of fearlessness. So here is what, and this ties in, I think, to what you were just saying. Um, Traditionally, the gift of fearlessness means liberating beings from captivity, bondage, or torment. I would say this includes prisoners, releasing prisoners, releasing birds, fish farms, wild animals, kids, parents, liberating beings by releasing them from our grip, our human grip. Another form of fearlessness is recognizing others as Buddha. Just like um, the precepts teach us how to live in a way that's upright, um, we can use this posture to, to give something of ourselves to others. And maybe one of the best things that you can give on a daily basis is your face. Really giving your face to the streetcar driver. Really giving your, your face to your friends. Um, I have a friend who is a focus puller. You know what that job is? It's when they're making a film. Um, there's a certain kind of camera, I guess, where one of the few operators on the camera just puts things into focus or not. And um, so she works on Hollywood films, and she said that the more uh, famous the actor is, the less you're allowed to look at them. And there are some actors that as soon as they're not acting, they have shades on so that nobody will look into your face. And part of the etiquette of being a focus puller is never to look at those actors in their eyes. It's bad etiquette. I thought this was really interesting. I think there is a relationship between um, holding on to ourselves and the way we let people in to our own face. So maybe one of the ways you can practice a padigraha is to really give uh, your face away. And notice where you hide your face. And I'm not talking about your true face before you were born. (laughs) Another form of fearlessness is um, dependent co-arising. Some of you know what that is. This is it's kind of an early Buddhist teaching on interdependence. <laughs> that everything that arises, arises intimately connected or interdependent or uh, dependent co-origination is one of the main transla- translations um, with everything else. So for example, in order for their, the eye to see a form, there has to be a form. They arise together. 
the experience of I consciousness, the experience of form, arise together. And um, in order to be here and study this way, there's a teacher and there's a student. And that also is a form of dependent arising. And eventually those conditions change, and maybe with some of you, I'll be the student. You know, we, we play these games. Right? And being able to see those games, see that dependent origination, is also um, fearlessness. I want to read a little passage about that. This is from uh, Reb Anderson. Uh, if you don't know Reb Anderson, he's a Zen priest at uh, Green Gulch Farms, which is in San Francisco. My students want me to give them Dharma gifts, but what does my daughter want from me? She doesn't want to hear about Buddha Dharma, but she does want her father to give her the Dharma treasure. For a number of years, my daughter felt frustrated in her relationship with me. Sometimes she would get angry and call me the worst name she could think of. She wanted to see if she could get to me, if she could rock her father's boat, and for a long time she couldn't. I would usually just laugh. Imagine a father's Zen teacher. <laughs> As an infant, she vomited in my face and I didn't mind. I trusted her love of me so much that nothing she could say could shake me. But her inability to move me was frustrating to her. She had to see that she could disturb me in order to realize our interdependence. Finally, one day she was able to show me clearly and accurately something about myself, and I was able to acknowledge it. We showed our interdependence. That was a great moment in our life together the Dharma gift we gave to each other. That's beautiful. Although, I find it's written kind of cold at the same time. So, I would like to talk to him about that story. <laughs> but, um, it's true, right? That, um, you know, we can have uh, equanimity so much so that we're not human anymore. You know? And we don't feel. And, and um, here the daughter is like trying to get her father to, to, to show something. To show something. The human side. That's fearlessness. It's fearlessness for him to, to, to show that. And also for her to really meet someone who is, uh, Rev Anderson's very very powerful and kind of he, he irons his robes and puts on new robes before every single session. Very majestic. And I can imagine how hard it must be for his daughter to be able to really continually try and break down that wall to get something, something real. So, um, to live without being greedy is not just to live without being greedy for things. It's about being generous. Generous with your time, 
generous with your face, but also generous in your imagination. And sometimes I want to replace this last one, this last precept, as being uh, taking refuge in the imagination. To literally reimagine um, the way you see the world over and over and over and over again as an act of generosity to your own mind and to the minds of others, to your own heart, to the hearts of others. To reimagine how you do your life is to not be greedy. And I think ethics are a great way into the imagination. You need a strong imagination to hold your emotions. You need a strong imagination to hold what you think of as your life. Last week we talked about sexuality and sexual fantasy. You need a strong imagination to hold all that. But these days I find for most of us, you know, what we talk about is not healthy imagination. We just talk about health. Are you healthy? How do you get more healthy? And um, that's what most people want, health. And, uh, And I think it would be interesting next time you think about your own health to also wonder about the healthiness of your imagination and what you can do to create elasticity in your imagination. Because if there is some way we're going to work with uh, the fissures in nuclear power plants right now, it's going to be with our imagination. We have to reimagine a lifestyle that's not sustainable. I was going to finish with a koan, but I think I'll wait because I want to hear from you. But um, fearlessness as non-greed. To not be scared of giving your face. Giving your face is like having a steady hand. You just give someone your face. You, you have a steady hand. Um, or, or giving your face is also like um, um, giving an honest answer, honest response. And um, you can do this with people when they're locked up. You can do this to people who you've locked up. You can do this to people who are dying. And if you've ever been with somebody who's dead, it's really nice to give a steady hand to a dead person. I remember when my uncle died and nobody was there and just being able to sit with him (coughs) and holding the hand of somebody who's dead. And it still feels like somehow giving. 
So this is the inter interbeing level, the imaginative level, the koan level of a parigraha. Not being greedy, not being stingy, not being possessive, or generosity, giving, giving fearlessly. <clears throat> So, um, I'd like to hear from you a little bit, and we'll see if we have time for the call. And then we're going to do a little exercise together, too. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy the line, your interpretation of non-greed and as being um, generous imagination, because uh, I find it to be a really interesting paradox insofar as I think oftentimes the exact thing that creates greed is also imagination, and I realize that the importance is not what you're doing, but how you're doing it. Um, but yeah, like this, like kind of like goal-oriented nature, and and the belief that life will be okay once this uh-huh. happens, or uh-huh. like, you know, this this constant like striving for a certain point, uh-huh. um, like that obviously is a kind of like thought-based relationship with the imagination. Yes. Yeah. In 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 the um in the Mahayana framework, this division between what you're doing and how you're doing, like when you say it doesn't matter what you're doing but how you're doing it, mm-hmm. isn't acceptable. Cool. <laughs> in the Mahayana framework, it matters how you're doing it and it matters what you're doing. And where you're doing it. And why you're doing it. All of that matters. All those levels matter. So I know you weren't here Tuesday, but I don't think, right? But on Tuesday we were talking about this, where the kind of reworking of the idea of karma in the Mahayana perspective is it's not just what your intention is in how you um, do your work, but that the actions that you take actually make a difference. So it does matter what you do. And uh-huh. And they have to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that this takes it to the koan level, right? It's like saying it's quite idealistic. Like your actions have to make a positive difference. Because it's easy to say, Oh, my intention is, is really pure. <laughs> yeah. You pick up a you find a little bird on the ground and you pick up the bird and Oh, you're flopping around, I feel, and you kiss the bird, and then you feed it organic seeds, you know, you check out, there's, I'm sure, an app for when you find the lost bird, and and then you take the bird home, and it's living a raw diet, and you cuddle it, and then you find out, like, the bird got kicked out of its nest, you know, so that it could figure out how to fly. And you just interrupted the whole process out of your good intention. So I feel so bad for the bird. I'm going to take over here, you know. It, and, and, and because of, you know, you didn't get it. You didn't see the cycle. So your intentions were so good. But uh, actually your actions were not so skillful in the grand scheme of things. So this is, this is the dance, right? This is what puts you into your life. Thich Nhat Hanh says that too. He's like, it's not just the willingness, it's the ability. That's a pretty damning thing to say. Yeah. I was also thinking about teaching and parenting as as a form of liberation. Uh huh. In in kind of perhaps a less dramatic way, but in just 
you know, by teaching, you know, even a, a child to to walk or, or mm -hmm. to speak as a form of liberation. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and I guess teaching, you know, parenting as by extension a form of generosity too. Yes. That's why I added that piece, also teaching and parenting as codependent arising, mm -hmm. not codependent, sorry, co-arising. Um, in other words, like I think a really skillful thing one can also do as a parent is also teach over time their child the co-arising of parent and child so that children can see that their parents are not their best friends. Right. that when the child needs to be a child, there's a parent. And then there's a time where the parent is other things. You know, and the child needs to be other things. But sometimes we kind of hold ourselves just in this alignment, parent and child. And it's a disservice, actually, to, to the relationship. But it takes some fearlessness, I think, to, to go into that territory. Like, to see your parent as a person... <laughs> well, I think some of us we don't want to do that. It's actually generosity. That's a good point. Yeah. Can you make a distinction between a stand and an Can you? Can you talk a little bit? And I'm, I'm struggling with it, I have to say. I feel like um, I've been trying to read about a stand because I feel like I didn't get as much out of uh -huh. that as I, I would have liked. And so yeah. Um, asteya means not taking what's not given freely. And aparigraha is more about hoarding. They're very closely connected. Yeah. As every precept is. Right. Yeah. But I think I've been thinking about asteya as, like, thinking about it in terms of, of taking more than you need. Uh-huh. Something I've been the other day. Uh-huh. Taking more than you need. But that almost sounds like what we're talking about here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So I'm catching that right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. really close. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good. Does anybody else want to comment on that? Or? Great. I feel like the imagination piece mm -hmm. is kind of the underpinning of all of the precepts. Mm -hmm. that yeah. If we have the tendency to shut down or polarize things. Yeah. That's where the imagination piece goes missing. Uh -huh. Can't see the connections. But yeah. Can I ask about yeah. um, how you distinguish like fearlessness and courage? Because mm -hmm. I kind of feel like when you say fearlessness, I think of oh, having the courage to. <coughs> Would you distinguish them? No. Sometimes it feels like courage, and sometimes it feels like a lack of fear. <laughs> In the Heart Sutra, it's, it's uh, fearlessness, the end of fear. Not having walls in the mind is the end of fear. It takes some courage.
Okay. So, no other comments or questions? We can do a little exercise together. Okay, this one takes a little courage. Um, so, uh, here's what we're going to do. I want you to find a partner. Uh, I haven't counted people, but if there are not enough people to go around for partners, one person can just watch. Um, in other words, you can play God. Just keep a distance. Know that you've created this whole, whole thing. And, um, and you're going to sit across from your partner. And um, So let's say I'm across from, from Angelo. And uh, I want you to be real close though. And um, you're going to ask them, um, how do you give? And as soon as they pause like this, because that means they're, they're not really answering, they're thinking it, then you ask again, how do you give? I receive a question. How do you give? I keep talking. <laughs> I feel like I'm not even saying How do you give? Okay, you got the exercise? So the person who's asking the question uh, is a little relentless, but it's coming, you know, from a good place. And um, the person who's speaking, I don't want you to give answers. So it shouldn't be a sentence. It's just, just kind of let your imagination show up and just speak from your heart. Whatever comes to, comes to mind. Is this clear? So there's no conversation going on. And the person who's asking the question, it's actually twice as hard. Because you're asking the question and you're receiving what you're hearing without putting yourself in there. Just receiving what you're hearing and asking questions. So the question is, how do you give? Okay? And as soon as your partner pauses, it, usually they look away, then you ask the question again. Okay? And so you don't have to be clever, you don't have to be smart, Nicole. You don't, have, you don't have to like the exercise or dislike the exercise. Um, just, just respond to the, the question. And, 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 and I'm going to say it again. You don't have to answer. There's not a right answer. How do you give? It's about just exploring what starts to, what starts to arise. And um, we're going to do this for seven minutes each. Okay? And I'll time it. <laughs> now, before you begin, I would also like you to find a partner with whom you have not worked. Okay? <laughs>